Lord, we just thank you for this evening. We thank you how much you love and care for us. We ask that you guide and lead us as we open the word and we look at it and, and examine it. And we just thank you for it in your son's name. Amen. amen. Psalm 142. I'm a shield of David, a prayer when he was in the cave. I cried unto the Lord with my voice, with my voice unto the Lord I, did I make my supplication. I poured out my complaint before him. I showed him before him my trouble. When my spirit was overwhelmed within me, then you knew my path. In the way therein, wherein I walked, have, you, have they privily laid a snare for me? I looked on my right hand, behold, and beheld, and, but there was no man that would know me. Refuge failed me, no man cared for my soul. I cried unto you, O Lord, and said, You are my refuge and my portion in the land of the living. Attend unto my cry, for I have brought, I am brought very low. Deliver me from my persecutors, for they are, very strong, they are stronger than I. Bring my soul out of prison, that I may praise your name. The righteous shall encompass me about, for you shall deal bountifully with me. All right. So this starts out with a Michelle, which is a poem or a of contemplation of David, a prayer when he was in the cave. Now, to us, this superscripture part there should ask, what cave are they talking about? And there's two times when David was in a cave in the scriptures. So it would probably be one of those two that are referenced in scriptures. Possibly it could just be any cave that he was hiding out. And those two caves were in First uh, Samuel 22, the cave of Adullam, and in First Samuel 24:1, the cave of En Gedi. And we'll give you a little bit of history on this. Uh, the cave of Adullam in Psalm First uh, Samuel uh, 22, Saul got angry at David, threw a spear at him. Uh, David was kind of in hiding. And remember, Jonathan had come to David and said, you know, if you don't come to the dinner tonight, my dad's going to miss you. And Saul asked where David was, and Jonathan, well, you know, he asked for permission to go, you know, to his family and sacrifice. And, and remember, Saul got so mad at Jonathan, he threw the spear at Jonathan. <laughs> and that's when Jonathan went out and, with his armor bearer, and he shot the arrows, and he said, if I tell you to go, that the arrow's behind you, David, you, you, you know, get out of there for your life. I don't know if you remember the story, but we're trying to give those up. Yes. Yes, that's in Psalm, First uh, Samuel 21. Uh, Jonathan, you know, because Saul understood that Jonathan loved David and was willing to let David take the kingdom, and basically he said, you know, you're such a fool, you'll give this this man your your kingdom, and he threw the, got angry and threw threw the spear at Jonathan. And Jonathan got angry, of course, with his dad for throwing a spear at him. But uh, basically, he told David to run. David was running for his life, and he went to the temple, and he asked him if he had any food and any weapons. They gave him showbread, and they gave him the sword of Goliath. After that, David had went to Gath to ask for refuge. They, of course, saw the sword of Goliath and knew who, who had taken it away, and and David had to pretend to be a lunatic he, you know, in front of him to get away. And then he went to the cave of Adullam, where he hid from Saul. And that is where he got his army gathered around him. People, people started flocking to him. And if you read the story, they, the ones that flocked to him were basically all the people who didn't have any real life. They were the scoundrels and the the rogues, but they aligned themselves with David and were following David. That is one of the two caves that it could be as far as scripture. I personally think because of verse four that that is the cave it's talking about. The second cave in scripture is in 1 Samuel 24. David's being chased by Saul all over the country. He's hiding in a cave. And this is the event where Saul goes into a cave to go to the, go to the bathroom and the men in David's group says, this is your chance to kill him. He's, he's here for, you know, God has delivered him into your hand. He cuts the skirt, of the, the hem of the skirt off 
Saul goes out, starts crossing the valley. David comes out of the cave and says, uh, Saul, I could have killed you. Here's, here's the proof. I've got, I cut your, your, uh, your hem of your uh, cloak or whatever you want to call that. And Saul stopped chasing David for a while after that event. Um, and it could, of course, be some unknown cave. <laughs> Uh, but in verse 4, when we get to verse 4, we'll talk about why I think that the cave of Dolom is, from the scripture, the right cave. So just a little bit of history on that, kind of bringing in some of the points that you may or may not remember from different stories of, of David's life. Uh, verse 1, I cried unto the Lord with my voice. With my voice unto the Lord did I make my supplication. And this is David's statement frequently. I cried, I spoke to you, literally is what it says. I, I used my voice to talk to you, God. And you know, every once in a while you hear people, and even some crazy pastors will say, don't voice out your prayers because God can hear your prayer and you don't want Satan to know what you're praying about. And you know, I think it's so stupid. I, you know, they, they give Satan too much power. You know, granted, yes, if you speak it out, Satan's going to know what you're praying about. But you know what? God is totally able to handle that. That's not a problem at all. But David says, I cried. I used my voice unto the Lord. And it says, with my voice did I make my supplication. And this literally means to implore for favor. And implore is a very strong word. And beg very adamantly. And David was being chased by Saul. This was a tough time in David's life. Because remember, before he started being chased by Saul, he killed Goliath. He'd been the song, you know, sang some songs for, for Saul. He went back home. He gets anointed to be the next king. And then he's under Saul again. So he's got a little bit of a flip-flop and emotions going on here anyway. Okay, I'm going to be the king. Saul's still king. I'm not going to step out and, and attack him. And all of a sudden, he's back in the palace playing the instruments for Saul and going out to battles, as we, as we know, he goes out to battles for him. And so there's all kinds of up and down on his emotions. And it's got to be hard for him. He's, he's anointed by, this, by the, pre, the prophet to be king. Now, David could have taken it as a right now event, gathered an army, and gone into rebellion. But that wasn't David's attitude toward the way God. He was going to wait for God. Yeah, when he was anointed, before he was anointed, Saul wasn't trying to kill him. He would play his instrument for Saul when he got into bad moods and sing songs for Saul and you know, music, music soothes the savage beast. In this case, music soothed the, the savage king and it would take his moods out. He'd bring God back into Saul's presence. It wasn't until David started going out and fighting battles for Saul and he came back one day with Saul and the women were singing Saul has killed his thousands and David his ten thousands that, that Saul got very jealous and that had been after he was told that he was going to lose his kingdom. Okay, so he was already upset. I'm gonna, the prophet has told me I'm going to lose my kingdom and all of a sudden David is coming out of nowhere you know, being, being given ten times the praise that, that Saul's getting and that irritated him. From that point on he was trying to kill David and David was playing the instrument one day and the spear was thrown at him and he narrowly escaped you know, that, that, that attack and then he ran all over the place you know, with Saul chasing him and then we had the two cave incidents we referred to. He's killed the giant, he's, he's getting the praise of the people, uh, he got away with the impossible dowry that he put on David to, to get the hand of Michael. If you remember, he had to go out and get the foreskins of us in Philistines, which he figured would be, you know, he'd be dead long before he could get that or 100, whatever it was. It was a big number. He had to kill a lot of people. And so he was raised up. Every time he sent him out into a death situation, David came back alive with more, more glory and more honor. And he got less honor for each of the things that he did. So he got, uh, but most of it was things that he had done because if he had really understood David's heart, you know, and this is true of anybody who's kind of a strong second command, they're usually, you know, if they're able to really do the job of the first person, the, of, the, of the person who's in charge, that intimidates them more often than not. 
because they're always worried that that person's going to take their job. Been in that situation myself. I've seen it in more than one situation. And it's like, just let them do their job. We know that you, you, were, you were hired to do your job. Just let them help you look good, and then we'll promote, we'll promote them to a different store. He didn't understand David's heart was to not take his place. He was waiting for God to take him out. And because he had more than, any, you know, like I said, David could have, okay, I'm anointed king. I'm going to go gather up an army, and we're going we're gonna to run a, cu- a, a, a coup here, and we're going to take this, take this nation by force. But that wasn't his heart. In the cave of En Gedi, he could have just killed Saul at that point. Saul was defenseless. You know, he's in there using, using the cave for a bathroom that his enemy is in. But he was defenseless, and David could have killed him at that moment. And that's, you know, David had more than one opportunity to destroy Saul and never did. He, and Saul never understood the heart of David. But, you know, the lost world doesn't usually understand the heart of a true Christian who is just trying to honor, honor God and, and be obedient. And Saul did not understand David, and he chased David all over the kingdom trying to kill him. And yet David was waiting. David was biding his time, waiting for Saul to be removed by God. And then when Saul was removed by God, all of Saul's sons were killed on the same battle. That was heartbreaking to David, I know. To, to lose his best friend, who would have probably given him the kingdom, but who knows when, when, when if, if he had lived, if it really would have given up the kingdom you know, when his father died. You know, it was, when it was just this theoretical thing, you know, he's going to be the next king, that was one thing. But when it, when it really came down to, okay, I'm the prince and I'm supposed to be king, <laughs> giving it up might have been a whole nother, nother story. So God knew what he was doing when he took the whole family out. He was preventing any kind of civil war or problems. And uh, we see here that David is saying, my voice, I'm going to give you my, my calls, my, my fervent pleads. And he's looking for this deliverance. He's being chased all over the place. And you know, if we think about what it would be like to be always on the run from a crazy king who's trying to take your life and, all, and knowing that if I just turned around and went to battle, I'd probably win, but not wanting to do that. You know, and sometimes as Christians, we need to just back off and let God deal with an issue rather than trying to deal with it ourselves. And just say, God, you're my defender. I'm going to leave it to you. God, if you want me to be in that position, then you take out the person who's in front of me or promote me to some other place or whatever it might be. And yet, oftentimes, we try to do things the world's way and hurt the person, make them look bad, and all that other stuff that goes on. And Saul never understood David's heart toward him. And David's going, God, I make my plea to you, deliver me. Verse 2, I poured out my complaints before him. I showed before him my troubles. He poured out his complaints, his, his musing, his troubles. I kind of like the, the word musings uh, on that. Because how often when we're having a hard time do we spend almost all of our energy thinking about the trouble that we're in and the problems that we have? And part of it is, how do I get out of this? What can I do to fix this? And... God is saying, put them on me. Let me take care of them. And it's not saying we totally just walk away from problems, but you know, how much time do we spend oftentimes just trying to figure out how we're going to get out of some situation? And most of the time, everything that we considered is not what gets us out of the problem in the first place. It's God doing something supernatural. If you have a money issue and it's like, okay, God, how am I going to get out of this? You know, uh, where, where can I find a better job? Where, how can I find extra jobs? And sometimes if we just back off and let God put, the, put things in our lap, he says, here it is. <laughs> here, here is your answer to this. And so often we spend hours and hours trying to figure out just how I'm going to get out. And I worry myself sick. And then I end up getting sick because I've been worried about how I'm going to fix this problem. And God's saying, I have an answer for you. And how often do we not pray when those things happen? 
I sit there and I try to figure it all out and I never, I never go to God as da David did and put my need in front of God. And he says, I poured out my need and I've, and I've showed him, before him, my troubles. He says, David, just put them out on the, on the table. And David's kind of using kingly language on this because this is what would happen in the king's judgment hall. People would come to the king, they would pour out their problem and their issue and then leave it to where the king to decide. And one of the things that was a great help for David was that he was in Saul's court. He did see what was supposed to, what was supposed to be going on and sometimes what wasn't going on so that he would know what not to do. But he was actually being in a position where he could see what it meant to be king. When God said, you're going to be the next king, he says, okay, I'm, I, be, I somewhat understand that, that job because he was watching it. Uh, when Ezra came out of Babylon to rebuild the, the temple, he had spent years being the king's cupbearer. He watched the king make decisions. He watched how the king acted and how he, how he handled people. Great education for the guy who was going to be a leader in a new, in a new nation, a reestablished re nation. That's not new, but reestablished nation. And he learned from a good king to how to handle people. And it was really a wonderful thing for him to, to be able to do. I said Nebuchadnezzar, didn't I? It's not the wrong king. <laughs> the king of Babylon at that time. We look at this and we say, David pours out his heart before God. He says, God, you're my king. You're my ruler. I'm just going to pour it all out and wait for your answer. And he understood what that meant, to wait for the answer of the king. Because he had watched Saul doing these things and watched people pour out their complaints to the king and say, okay, and wait. How often when we pour out our complaints to God, do we not wait for an answer? We go, okay, God, I've told you what I want. I'm going to go, I'm going to go fix it now <laughs> or try to fix it. <laughs> and we oftentimes keep doing that same thing with God. We expect him to act, we'll him to act that, right that moment or not, just not wait. You know, we as human beings, even as Christians, do not like to wait in many cases. We're very impatient. God, you didn't fix it yesterday. I'm not happy with you. You know, God, here's my, here's my answer, and you haven't fixed it yet, and I'm not very happy. And then we go right back out and try to fix the issue, fix the problem. And it's human nature. It's very human to do this. And uh, we, we see this. God says, cast all your cares upon him. And oftentimes we cast our cares upon him. And we turn around to leave, and then we go, well, let's see, maybe I'll take this one back, and 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 we walk away with all of our cares still on us. And if we're not careful, we grab somebody else's cares to add to our pile of cares that we just were supposed to put on him and leave there. And David here is understanding, God, I'm pouring this out. You're my king. You're my God. And he understood what it meant for the king to act. In some ways in our world, especially as Americans, we, we don't know all of this type of language he's using. David is using this language of pouring out his need to the king and knowing that the king, now it's in the king's court. It's in the king's court to fix. We pour it out to God and then we say, okay, I'm going to take it back, God. How come he doesn't alleviate the pressure? We don't allow him to. Uh, hey, Dad, I, w I want to borrow the car Friday night and we walk away not giving him a moment to answer the question. Okay, we either take it for granted that he will, or, and then we start thinking, okay, if, he, if dad doesn't let me have the car, what am I going to do? Okay, I'm going to call my buddy, or this buddy, or that buddy, or, you know, we do this with almost all of our human relationships, and we do it with God. God, you didn't answer me five seconds before I answered it, so now I've got to go, go do what I, what I want to do. And this is our impatience as human beings. All of us have this problem. It's to some greater or lesser degree. But God is saying, cast all your, my, your cares upon me, for I care for you. And he wants us to just cast our cares on him and let him give us the answers. Let him give us divine insight. And yet so often, we won't. And we're going to see that David doesn't really do it either in this, in this uh, sentence, at least at first. 
Verse 3 says, When my spirit was overwhelmed within me, then you knew my path. In the way wherein I walked, have they privily laid a snare for me. David says, When my soul is faint within me. Oh, how often do we have faint souls that are just tired. Yeah. And we're not happy with the, what, whatever lot God has given us, no matter or where, where we're at, and we just grow weary. Mostly we grow weary because we're trying to carry the load. <laughs> and if we just give it up to God, it works out a lot better. But you know, I understand as much as anybody else, it's hard to give up your worry about your situations. And struggle and struggle and struggle and you pray and you give it to God and you walk away and you take it back again. Yeah. Done it so many times. So many times I've done that. And all of us have. Pray and get, put it in God's hands and then maybe we even leave it there when we first leave and then we kind of sneak back in and say, God, I want this problem back, you know, because you're just not answering it fast enough. Well, though we may not say it that way, isn't that what we're really saying when we take the, the, the burden back? God, you didn't answer it as fast as I wanted you to earth, answer it, so now I've got to go deal with it. Uh, you know, and this is why I use these terms of what we're really trying to say to God when we do these things. We don't actually say them, but that's really what we're, we're saying. And it says, and I kind of saw this. I had to study this one for it, because in the King James it says, then you knew my path. And that then, as far as I've been able to determine, does not belong there. All right? It's, I poured out my complaint bef uh, um, when my spirit was overwhelmed within me, you knew my path. The then does not really belong there. It's not like God all of a sudden came to the conclusion because he saw what was going on. The then does not belong there. But basically he's saying, God, you knew my path. It gives him that comfort. Actually, from what I was able to see, there's really no word there in the Hebrew. It's just one of those added words to help make the sense of the next words. What, he, what I think he's trying to tell us here, whether we put when, since, or any other in there, is that I'm being overwhelmed, but God, you already knew where, I was, where I'm at. And this is important. This is something I, I speak about all the time. My peace with God comes from the fact that he knows everything about me and has a plan for my life. Even when I caused mistakes in the plan, <laughs> the, the perfect plan, he knew those mistakes were coming and had already planned for the mistake. He knows what's going on. When we feel overwhelmed, God knew we were going to feel overwhelmed. And he has a plan if we will just surrender to him. But it is true, the more we can understand that God has a plan for us and that it's a good plan for us, the more we should be able just to back off from him and say, okay, God, I'm going to release to you. I just want what you want. And it's not easy in the middle of the trial to give it over to God. And, I'm, and I, don't, I never want to make it sound like it easy, but that's what he expects. Any plan of better than we have. Always. <laughs> any plan of God is better. Any, any plan of God is better. Any plan of God is better than anything we're going to plan. But we need to be very careful because when we seem to have bad things going on in our life, God knew they were coming. And probably even allowed them in many cases. And this is why I love the book of Job. Especially those opening three chapters where God and Satan are talking. You know, hey, Satan, have you thought about Job? <laughs> oh, sure I have, but you're protecting him. Well, you can go do whatever. Satan is limited by what God allows him to do in our lives. Even when we mess up, there's a limit put on what's going to happen. Because God knows what's going on and he knows his plans for us. And in Jeremiah it says, I know the plans that I have to bring good. God is good. He wants to bring good into our life. Even when we don't deserve it, he wants to bring good into our life because we are his children. And here David says, you know, you know, even when my spirit is faint within me, you know my path. This is a great blessing. This is a verse that we probably should kind of keep in our mind. When I'm really faint, God has, knows where I'm at and where I'm going. 
He is not surprised, and this is what I say. The one word you'll never hear God say, I didn't know that was going to happen. You know, you're never going to hear him say that phrase. <laughs> you know, he's going, whoops, yeah. how did that happen? You know, he is never surprised by anything that comes our way. And there's a plan, and that's what David's saying here. Even when I'm faint, you knew their plan. And then he goes, in the path that I, wherein I walked, have they privately or privately laid snares for me. Everywhere David was turning, he was finding spies, issues, problems. Uh, in the king, when, when he lied to the priest about being sent on a special mission for Saul, 45 priests lost their lives because of that lie. He told them that he was on a mission for Saul and needed food and, and, a, and, and a weapon. He got so, so, uh, Goliath's sword. There was a person from Saul's kingdom that knew David, and he reported that the priest helped David. Now, he didn't report the whole story. He didn't report every word of what went on. And when Saul questioned the priest, he killed 45 of them because he was so angry with them. This is the type of person Saul was. He wasn't a nice guy. Okay, But everywhere David went, he had to be careful because there, Saul had people watching out for him everywhere. And they'd go to Saul and say, hey, David was in this province or this town or, or this place. And the problem was, wherever David went, if anybody helped him and there was any of Saul's spies there, they paid the price because Saul would be angry at them. You know, here is a man that's basically Saul's right-hand man in many ways. He's the son-in-law of Saul. He's been going out to battle, winning battles. So if he shows up, as far as people are concerned, at least especially if it was a dolom because he was still very on top of the world, as far as he would show up, they would go, okay, this is the king's man. Give him whatever help you can. And when he played that card with the priest, it, it, made, the, it made them lose their lives. And it was all because of a lie. He told them that he was on urgent business for Saul and had to leave quickly. So quickly that he, had to, that he hadn't even had time to grab his armor or his sword. And they ended up losing their lives over David's lie. And that probably is one of the worst things that we think of is how many times will our lies and our disobedience hurt somebody else? Not just us. When this is the sad thing that we have to look at. When we are disobedient, sometimes we look and say, okay, God, well, you're just going to spank me a little bit. I can handle that. David made a lie. He's running for his life, and 45 people paid the price for his lie. And I don't think he ever calculated that that would be the consequence of his lie. Ever. And that happens so often. Somebody will make, do something, it'll be a lie, it'll cause a sin. And it's not always just, the, just you that gets hurt when you do that. Many times others are hurt. And sometimes severely hurt. He says, there's snares out there for me. People are trying to trap me. Here's a man that everywhere he goes, there's, he finds Saul's army. Yeah. Walks around this way, and there's Saul's army. Goes back through this valley, and there's Saul's army. He goes over here, he finds a spy for Saul. You know, and, and people are always trying to capture him. You know, I wonder how many miraculous salvations he had during this period of time. You know, do I take the right hand or the left hand? You know, and makes the, right, the correct choice and ends up walking around Saul's army instead of facing Saul's army. And how many times he escaped with his life. It's kind of an kind of an amazing thought. And then we see his real depression starting in verse four, and this is this is the section why I believe it's a dolom and not in Getty. I looked to my right hand and beheld, but there was no man that would know me. Refuge failed me, no man cared for my soul. By the time of Engedi, he had an army with him. And remember when I told you he was urged by his followers, this, Saul has been put in your hands, go kill him. He had people that were recognizing him and that were on his side. When he was in Adolam, he was running for his life by himself at first. And then we read that many came to him that were, you know, basically the gangsters and the, and the thugs <laughs> gathered around him, but they obeyed him. And they, he made them righteous. So I, that's why I believe he was in a dolem at the time of this writing rather than in Getty. 
It's not a strong evidence, but, but it says, I looked to my right hand, which is your site of approval, and behold, there was no man that would know me. And this word for know is no one willing to recognize or acknowledge him. All right? And you've got to think, this is pretty tough for David at this point. When, when he was back home taking care of the sheep and Sam, Samuel came to, to anoint him, it was really bad. Samuel told his dad, you know, gather up all of your sons because we're going to have a dinner. And he gathers up all the sons except David. Okay. And Samuel overlooks all, the, all of his sons and goes, do you have any other son? None of these are the one. And in the way you know, it sounds so funny, oh, yes, there's another one up out in the field watching the, fle- watching the flock. Almost like, yeah, you're right, I do have another son. He's out there in the wilderness. You know, I never see him around here. He's always taking care of the sheep. You know, it's almost like he'd totally forgotten about David. And even when he was around the palace, you know, he was just the guy that played the instruments you know, to, to calm him down most of the time. And he's saying, no one's recognized me. Now, he's gone from being a, the strong leader, being recognized when he comes in and out of, the, out, out of Jerusalem, to <laughs> nobody wants to be on his side. Yeah. And we see this sometimes, oftentimes in the movies and everything, where somebody has fallen out of grace and nobody wants to admit that they even know the person. Uh, yeah. Do you know your best friend? Uh, nope, never, never heard of him before. <laughs> yeah. Don't know him, uh, don't, want to be known, don't want to be known as his friend because they're no longer in grace. And here, David had fallen that far. Saul's trying to chase him down and kill him. And nobody really wants to admit that they know him. And at least that's how David sees the issue at this moment. He's going to find out that others are going to join him and he's going to get his own band. But he says, there's so, nobody there. Refuge failed me. I can't even find a hiding place. And that's why the fact that he says refuge fails me is that some people will go to En Gedi because Saul comes into the very cave that he's hiding in. So... But I, I really don't, I think that if he's really saying no man will recognize me, that it has to be a dolem. That's good reasoning, I think I agree. Yeah, because by the, by the time of Nguyen, he's got an army around yeah. him. He's got an army around him by that time, and they're recognizing him as their leader. So no, no strong proof here. You know, if somebody wants to pick the other one, I'm not going to argue with them. It's not a big deal. Which cave he is in is not a big deal. And as I've said at the very beginning, it could be some cave that was never mentioned in the scriptures as he's running, running for his life. And then it says, no man cared for my soul. And again, this makes me wonder, really believe it must be a dolem and not in Getty because he's got a whole army that's trying to protect him at that time. But you know, this whole idea, have we ever been to a place where we just think nobody cares for me? Nobody loves me, nobody cares. Oh, woe is me. <laughs> Uh, and Satan likes to hit us with that kind of complaint a lot, especially if we're by ourselves or things are getting tough and there's nobody there to support us and it's real easy to get into this, oh, woe is me. And then yet, how many times do we push away anybody who wants to help us during that period of time as well? And we kind of just, okay, I, I, I just want to have my pity party. Leave me alone. And we, Satan uses that attack on us a lot. And there's been lots of great Christian leaders who have gone into uh, great depression because they didn't do enough for God. I uh, can't remember which evangelist it was. I want to see D- say D.L. Moody, but one of the evangelists, you know, they do a great campaign. People, hundreds and thousands of people would get, get saved. And then he went in depression for a week or two after the campaign because not enough people got saved. And he would trying to figure out what he had done wrong. I, what could I have done better to get more people saved? Now, far as a good reason to, to, but not to go into depression over. And yet, this is a human tendency. I could have done more. I could have done this. I could have done that. And get into a real deep problem with our life. And we want to be very careful of that. We've done whatever we could. If we did the best job we could, we praise God for the results that we had. If you half-heartedly did it, then say, God, I'm sorry, I repent, I'll do better the next time. But we can't, we've got to be very careful about getting into these depressions. We've talked about this. David seems to be what we say today, a manic depressant. He would be, his highs were very high, and when he crashed down from those highs, he came very low, and he was very depressed. 
And we see that all through the Psalms. He starts out really low or really high, and there doesn't seem to be a whole lot of in-between for David. And we see that in his life when we read, it, read his life, that very high highs, very low lows, and a lot of woe is me when he's low. You know, everybody's against me. The whole world's against me. I have nobody who loves me, is what he keeps saying. And that's a very dangerous place to be. We've probably all been there at some point where we feel like nobody loves us and the whole world is against us. But it's, number one, it's never true. God always loves us, and there's usually three or four people in our lives that love us somewhere. You know, some family member, mom usually loves us <laughs> in most cases, but not always for everybody. But you know, we want to be very careful about this idea that nobody loves us and just getting into a pity party. And David is at that point on here. There is absolutely nobody who cares for me. Verse 5, I cried unto you, O Lord. I said, you are my refuge and my portion in the land of the living. And I love this because this is where David starts changing his mind. He takes his eyes off himself and puts them on God. God, you are my refuge. You're my protector. You're my care, And you're my portion in the land of the living. God, I'm going to take whatever you send my way, basically. If you let me die, then I'll, then I'll be with you. If you have something that you're going to give me, then I'll take that too. He was, very, he was a man of faith. But he also understood, you know, here he is being chased, and he doesn't seem to have any friends. He says, but God, you are. You are the one I can hide in. Which is exactly what he said back when he was standing in front of Goliath, you know, and the king. You know, my God delivered a lion into my hands and a bear into my hands that were going to kill, kill my sheep. This uncircumcised Philistine will be no less than them because God will deliver him into my hand. When David was up, he was very faithful. He was very much in touch with God and his desires. When he was down, he was miserable. <laughs> but his eyes, would, when he was up, he was focused on God. And when he was down, he was focused on himself. And that's usually the same thing for us. When we're focused on God, nothing seems to be a problem. You could go through the hardest troubles in your life focused on God and nothing seems to be affect you. You start focusing on your problems and getting your eyes off God, just like Peter did when he was walking on the water. When his eyes were on Jesus, he walked on the water. When he saw the waves, he started sinking. And he was smart enough to cry out for help from Jesus. But you know, this is what happens to us all the time. If our eyes are focused on Jesus and God, we walk through the storms, we walk through the, the hardships with no problems. When we take our eyes off him and we start looking at all the problems, sometimes the problems really aren't that bad, but they, they look so bad when you're in the midst of them. Uh, if you've ever, you know, it's kind of funny when you're sailing, you're on a small boat. The, the, the water looks so smooth sometimes, and then you get out in it, and those little, you know, one foot, waves out there can bounce your boat around a bit. And it looked smooth from out there, and it looked good. How many times have we we've been knocked down in the storms of life by a one-foot, two-foot wave that really shouldn't have been anything if our eyes were focused on God? But we focused on the problems, and those little tiny waves end up being huge storms in our, in our, in our mind. And other times you walk with your eyes on God and you come to the middle of it come out of it on the other side of a storm and you kind of look back and say, whoa, what's all that damage back there? You know, I didn't notice any of it because my eyes were on God and I was, refuge was in God. And that's what David's saying. He gets, David got to the point and he goes, God, you're my refuge. I can run from him, I can hide from him, but God, ultimately, you're my refuge. You're my help. You're my only portion. Verse 6, attend unto my cry, for I am brought very low. Deliver me from the persecutors, for they are stronger than I. And so attend, listen to my voice. I am brought very low. And this word for low here is uh, to languish. <laughs> He's exceedingly languishing. That's a pretty severe place. If you're languishing, that means you have no hope whatsoever. And this is what he's saying, attend to me, God. I have no hope. 
And oftentimes, if we're not going to do it on our own, turning to God, sometimes he will put us to the place where we have no hope so that we will turn to him. Now, the, his ideal would be for us to turn to him before he has to give us no hope. But we as humans oftentimes have to be, learn things the hard way. And God sometimes has to take away everything before we will turn to him. The, the Jews, even in the Jews when they were being delivered from Egypt, why did God call Moses? Because the people had been calling out for deliverance from their, from their slavery. What happened when, jo when, when Moses showed up and talked to them? They go, well, who are you to come here? You know, they didn't believe that he was going to be their deliverer. What did they expect? They expected God to just supernaturally transport them out of the land of Egypt without a leader. And oftentimes, that's our plan. God, I'm praying to you, and I want some supernatural deliverance. And God says, well, you needed the money. I had three people trying to hand you money, and you, re you, reject you rejected all of them. The old, the old story about the guy in a flood, you know, it's, you know, God, you're going you're gonna to deliver, deliver me from this. And they come in with a car just before the water gets to his door. No, nope, God's going to deliver me. They come with a, a rowboat. You know, no, nope, God's going to deliver me. <laughs> you know, gets up to the roof. You know, they come with a, a motorboat. No, nope, God's going to deliver me. You know, water's getting up to his neck again. The helicopter comes along. You know, you know God's going to deliver me. Gets to heaven. God, why didn't you deliver me? He goes, I sent you a car, a rowboat, a motorboat, and a helicopter. What more did you want? But, you know, that really does talk about our expectations sometimes when we put it in God's hands. If our answer comes from another human being, oftentimes we reject that as being God's answer to our prayer. Because we're looking for supernatural rain, you know, coins to fall from heaven and, and, and meet our need. Uh, God snatching me from that roof and putting me up on the hill, you know, from our story there about the flood. We're looking for something supernatural, and when God delivers us through natural means, we don't always recognize it. My favorite story in, in the Mueller biography is when he's got the kids sitting down for breakfast. There's no food, and as he's praying God, to thank God for the food, he gets the knock on the door. And, and the milkman's got a broken down wagon outside, and he goes, sir, can you use this milk? I've got to empty my cart to get the, the wagon wheel fixed. And he goes, I either dump it on the road or give it to, give it to the kids. And he says, sure, we'll take it. He's in the process of passing out the milk, and the baker comes in and says, I don't know why, but I just felt that I, was, I had to bake these loaves of bread and deliver them to you. Okay. Now, Mueller could have said, well, God, that's not my answer. You didn't, you didn't do this supernaturally. But he recognized it as the answer to his prayer, which was a supernatural answer, and he recognized it that way. But so many times we look at God and say, God, you didn't answer it the way I wanted you to answer or the way I expected. You can see his picture of that of all the kids sitting at the table. He's drinking and they're probably all watching well, the staff especially, I don't know if the kids were so much, but the staff was watching him because they're going, the staff had already told him there's no food to feed the kids. And he goes, okay, I'm going to go out there and bless, bless, uh, give a blessing for the breakfast. And they're all going, but there's no food. The staff had no faith at all that this was going to happen. But, you know, what I'm saying on the point on this is he could have been saying, God, we want you to, we want you to rain down manna from heaven to feed us. Knock, knock, knock. Uh, go away, we don't want that bread. We're waiting for God to give us, give us food. And we do that a lot. And we laugh about it, but we do that kind of stuff a lot with God. God, you just didn't answer it the way I expected you to. You didn't, you didn't do this a supernatural, amazing way. You had people come and be your angels. We need to be so careful of that. Because I have had people that will say, no, I'm not going to, I need money, but I'm not going to accept money from somebody in the church. When God tells them to be the one giving them the blessing. In most of the world, it's an insult not to accept a gift. But to me, it's more, even more drastic. It's me taking away somebody's blessing. Whether they heard right or wrong doesn't really matter to me. Their heart was to give. And if they're going to give then my job is to accept it. Even if I don't want it and I give it away again, my job is to accept that gift. And God may know something I don't know. He may be preparing me for a problem, or he may 
Or it may literally be that there's an issue that needs to be dealt with. And we need to be humble enough to be able to just take and accept gifts given to us and realize that that may be God's way to get us out of the prayer that we've been praying. Because it is so important because it is easy to reject something because it looks natural. It, when it's God behind the scenes making things happen. And David says, you are the one, deliver me from my persecutors, for they are stronger than I. And this, is, again, if this is Odolam, it makes perfect sense because he's by himself and Saul has an army chasing him everywhere he goes. And it's not until he has an army that he becomes stronger, but even then Saul has a bigger army. David, had, I think at best, had 800 people. Saul has thousands of people at his disposal. He's got the entire nation scouring for David. What a waste of resources. And that's what he had done. And then in verse 7, Bring my soul out of prison that I may praise your name. The righteous shall compass, about, compass me about, for you shall deal bountifully with me. Bring my soul out of prison. And this word for bring literally in Hebrew is cause me to move. And I think that's a very critical thing because how many times does God have to force us out of the prisons that we get ourselves into? God, I just, I want you to help me, but you're not doing it the way I want it done, so I'm just going to sit here in this prison until you do it my way. And we do this a lot. We do this a lot with God. God, I'm just going to sit here and stew in my prison because I'm not getting the answers the way I want them to be. And we might not be that blunt, but it's, God, you're not, you're not, I don't see the way out. God says, the door's right over here. <laughs> the door's right here. It's wide open. Go through it. If you think about the story of Peter when he's delivered from the, from the dungeon, he's sleeping. He at least had enough faith in God that he's sleeping. He's going to be executed the next day, and he's sleeping. And it says, the angel woke him and took the, the fetters off and almost had to push him out the doors. For his credit, it does say that he thought he was dreaming. But you know, it's quite a picture because that's this picture of David saying, God caused me to get out of the prison. When I don't see the answers I'm thinking I want, help me to get out of the prison. And the angel had to kind of guide Peter out the doors, out the, out, out the door of the prison, out the, out the steps, got him outside the wall, and then the angel disappeared and Peter came to himself and realized that he was outside the prison. But you know, how many times do we end up doing that with God? God, I am stuck in this prison. And God is saying, well, the, way, the door is right there. God, I am stuck in this. Okay, I opened another door. <laughs> I knocked down all the walls. In uh, C.S. Lewis's Chronicles of Narnia, The Last Battle, this guy is thrown through a door that he is absolutely sure leads to a stable with straw. He ends up in Aslan's country of beautiful, heaven-like world, and all he sees is a dark stable. He is, he is locked in his prison and will not be delivered in spite of what his eyes show him. We are that way frequently. God puts us out of our prison cell, drags us out of it, kicking and screaming sometimes. And then all we see is that we went into another prison cell. And God says, there's a whole vista open in front of us. And here David's saying, bring me out of that prison. Drag me and cause me to, my soul to come out of that prison. And I have seen it so often with people that are stuck in the prison that they've created in their mind. That's so stuck that they will not see any provision in front of them at all. You try to point it out and they go, well, I can't, can't believe that would happen. It's standing right there in front of you. You know, but they just won't believe it. And that's why I love this in the, in the Hebrew saying, cause me to be brought out of this prison, my soul to be brought out of this prison. Because so many times we will stay imprisoned in our mind even when we're not a prisoner. And we need to really understand that God delivers us and has good for us. Even if we're in a real prison, he still has good plans for us and has a reason for it to happen. So often we feel like we're trapped in a situation. And you are trapped in your situation without God. 
the point that I'm making is, are we looking at what God is trying to do for us? Are we opening our eyes and saying, God, what is it you want me to do, and how, do you want, how are you going to make it happen? And God does not allow our plans to work. He's not going to let our flesh stand before him. He wants us to be surrendered to him and crucified so that he can do what he wants to do. And sometimes it matches. <laughs> sometimes it matches what we want to do. But when it was our own plan, he wasn't going to let it happen. And here David is saying, take me out of this prison that I may praise your name. God, you're going to get me out of these things that I'm going to lift you up. And this is the other side of that coin. When God does his work, we need to praise him and give him glory and give him thanks. Because ultimately, that's what it's all about. God wants his name lifted up. And we've talked about name. Name isn't just God or Jesus. It is literally all the reputation that belongs to that name. And that's what David says, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to lift your name up. I'm going to laud your name, literally. I'm going to just talk it up and up and up and up and up. All of your reputation, God. And then it says, the righteous shall encompass me, and you, and you shall deal bountifully with me, or repay bountifully. And a beautiful picture when David finally gets up there, God, you are the one that I just want to praise your name, and the righteous will be around me. Now, the army he got was not exactly righteous, but I guess he had influence on them because they tended, they ended up being pretty good guys all through, all through his kingship. But when they first gathered around him, they were the rogues gallery of scoundrels. <laughs> they loved David, and, and David brought God into their life. And they turned out to be pretty good guys by the time David set up his army and his kingdom, and they, they got to be the captains of thousands and, and ten thousands because they had been with David for so long. And they were, ended up being fairly righteous men as far as we understood. Uh, all right, we're going to end there. Lord, we just thank you for this day. We thank you for this opportunity we've had to look at your, your, your word. And Lord, teach us to always surrender our lives to your plan. Help us to keep focused on you and, and guided by you in all that we do. And Lord, most importantly, let us always remember to praise you for what you do for us. In your son's name, amen.